It's a real privilege for me to introduce our speaker today, who is Leland Eliason. Uh, Leland and Carol, his wife, have been part of Mill City for many years, and they've been investing in this church in all sorts of ways that many of you don't see, including Leland being the chair of our leadership team during some really important transitions in the life of our church when we became an independent congregation and moved into building ownership. Uh, more than that, though, for me, uh, over the last 15 years of my life, Leland has been an incredibly important mentor, somebody who's really encouraged me in growing up as a pastor and taught me some really important things, not only about how to lead in a congregation, but how to be aware of how you are doing. One of Leland's best questions is always, when he looks at you, he'll always want to know how you are actually doing, which isn't always true in the world and isn't always true in the leadership world. So I'm really grateful for Leland investing in me as a person and many other of the people in this church uh, to help us grow as a congregation. It's been a huge benefit. Leland led churches for decades with his wife. He also was the head of Bethel Seminary for 15 years before retiring from that work. And now he invests in churches around the country. Uh, including one called Mill City Church. So would you please welcome by clapping for Leland Eliasson. Thanks, Scott. Well, I'm glad I came to church this morning just to hear that. It was very nice. <laughs> Carol and I love being here at this church. We think you're a very accepting group of people. We're the oldest folks here, I think. And we've never been rejected because of gray hair or any such things, and I thank you for that. Oh, there are some others here as well. Um, so we brag on this church on a regular basis when we're around and about talking about uh, the fact that uh, I don't think we've ever experienced a church that lives its motto to love this community in the name of Jesus as well and consistently as this church does. And we're just privileged to be a part of this fellowship. I came early this morning because of uh, my responsibilities, and I saw just a host of people setting this place up. There's so much that goes on, and in addition to the worship leaders who are here, I would like everybody who was here early this morning to help set up the stand right now, because you deserve a round of appreciation as well. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and thank you, and, and these people do this, and others as well, every week, and it's just a, a terrific thing, so. Well, I don't know if uh, this is what you experienced this last week, but uh, Carol and I both did, and that is a, a kind of ominous mood that has been created by the massacre in San Bernardino. Uh, in California, and the death of, of those 14 people and the wounding of all of the others uh, is just plain difficult, isn't it? In the last months, we've lived with wars and rumors of wars, and it seems to me that the world is in chaos. Doesn't it seem that way to you? And uh, it makes you uh, wonder uh, about this, uh, this mission of the terrorists they have succeeded far more effectively in creating a fear in the hearts and minds of tens of millions of people than any of us wanted to acknowledge. And uh, it might seem to some that it is the height of 
naivete for, for us to talk about the birth of a baby in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago in light of this world that we live in. Wouldn't it be more wise to, uh, to talk about how to wage war against the perpetrators of death and talk about the power of guns and bombs and special operations? So I reviewed some of the facts about terror at the time of Christ's birth. Fifty years before Christ was born, uh, Julius Caesar invaded uh, the area that's now called France and Belgium in the Gallic Wars. And uh, there were many estimates of the ancient historians about how many people died in those wars. One of them said 400,000 were killed. Another estimate was a million people died in those wars. And a contemporary historian estimates that probably uh, 700,000 people died in those wars. But that's just part of the story because the descriptions of what the victorious soldiers did during those wars uh, deserves an R rating or worse. Uh, they just committed unspeakable acts of evil as they wiped out towns and destroyed the population. As bad as that was, it was a surprise to me to learn that Emperor Tiberius, who ruled for 23 years from 14 to 37 AD, actually had executed, get this, 38,000 political rivals over those 23 years. Sometimes it was a mass execution of 20 or 40 or 120 people. But if you do the math on that, that's 135 executions a month, 34 a week, or between 8 and 9 a day. And the executions were done in the style of the barbaric ISIL executions that we are so bothered by. Herod's decree to kill all the babies two years old and under was therefore understood by the friends and relatives of Joseph and Mary as being quite normal for the day. Uh, all kinds of rulers with absolute authority exercised their paranoia by killing others. So when Joseph was warned in a dream that he should take his wife and, and baby and go to Egypt. He immediately went. He had no illusions about the fact that if they remained, death could come to their household. So if that's what actually, actually the ancient world at the time of Christ makes living in the Western world today, in spite of what's happened in France and in the United States, it looks like utopia by comparison. I'm, I'm not saying that to minimize at all the terror and the ugliness of what's been happening. I'm saying that to remind us that in that world, with that kind of terror, God said, the most important thing I can do is to send my son. And Jesus was born. And God is saying, I care far more about reconciliation than I do about building walls. And I call you to forgive instead of retaliate. It is at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ 
this message of Christmas. And it helps us to remember that the wars and the killings and the immortality, immorality did not stop the rise of Christianity. If anything, the gospel of Christ shone so brightly in the darkness of that time that Christianity just spread all over the ancient world. Well, this morning I want to look with you. That was all prologue. I haven't gotten to my message yet, so don't count that time against me, okay? The, the passage of Scripture that I want to lift up for you comes from the Gospel of John, and we could call this uh, the Christmas according to the Apostle John. Read this, word, this verse with me in unison beginning now. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now that phrase, made his dwelling among us, deserves some attention. Eugene Peterson, in his translation, uh, says the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. That's a great phrase. Some translations say Jesus tented among us. Now that phrase, tented among us, comes from an Old Testament passage, which uh, is found in Exodus. So let's look at this from Exodus 33. There are two slides on this. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. And that is a beautiful picture of Jesus in one sense, because this tent was a meeting place with God, and that when Jesus came and moved into the neighborhood, he, he provided a meeting place with God to all who would believe in him. But when I think about uh, Jesus tenting among us, I find myself thinking about what that means for Christ. I mean, tents are cold in winter, hot in summer, and damp when it rains. They offer little protection from animals or thieves. Tent living allows you to hear everything around you and prevents you from not hearing everything around you. The last tenting experience Carol and I had was in Disney in their area. We were traveling with relatives and we pitched our tents and it seemed like we had a lot of space, but as the evening went on, folks came in and moved right next to us and we heard everything they said and we talked very quietly so they couldn't hear what we were saying. The next morning when we went out to go to the restrooms, well, in the night, four busloads of, uh, of uh, Boy Scouts had moved into the camp and the lines in front of those places were insufferably long, it seemed to me. So it wasn't the most ideal experience of tenting for me. When we built our cabin on Lake Vermilion, we lived in a tent for two weeks. And then hearing the sounds around us, especially in the morning, to be awakened to the sounds of birds singing, that was a really very pleasant experience for us. But tents offer little by way of stability and permanence. Tents are inexpensive compared to the land and homes that permanent dwellings have. Now, think about this. 
Earlier in John 1, it says that about Jesus, through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So the architect and the creator of the universe surely could have designed a place for him to dwell that would be a cut above a tent, right? I mean, he could have been in a palace. Look at this picture of an Assyrian king's palace from the ancient world. It was decorated in the finest of uh, stones and paints of the day, and gold inlays were everywhere. And if Jesus had palaced among us, well, he could have, he could have outdone Vanderbilt's house. It's supposed to be the largest in the United States. Carol and I visited it. Maybe you have as well. 265 rooms in this little cottage. And uh, when they built it, they had a, a railroad spur from the main line to haul the tons and tons of materials to build this place. And uh, you had to drive about eight miles to get to it. It's in a remote place uh, where the, the building itself is located. It's gorgeous. It's like a palace. What if Jesus had palaced among us? It would have been... Uh, a quite different picture of Christ. Or we just heard in, in the story of Advent Sundays that last Sunday was King Jesus Sunday. Well, what if he had fortressed among us instead of tented among us? The picture of God as fortress is all over the place in the Psalms. It is a place of refuge. God, you are our fortress, a safe haven for people in trouble and you'll take care of us. So, God could have, Jesus could have fortressed among us. But if he had done either palacing or fortressing, he would have signified a picture of God that was powerful but remote. Uh, powerful but not to be befriended. Someone who was revered by the elite but ignored by the masses. So what happened was that Jesus came tenting among us. And here's a picture of a tent from the area of Palestine. Uh, but even if you have a large tent instead of this small one, from our standards, it doesn't do very much to enhance your status or your prestige, does it? Jesus came tenting, beginning in the manger scene. And that pictures the fact that uh, the creator of all that exists came to live as a creature within that creation. That the God of glory awakened to the smells of animals. And that the omniscient one gave that up in order to become a human and a baby and a child who had to grow in wisdom and knowledge the way every other human being had to do. And that the most powerful being imaginable became a baby, vulnerable and weak and needy. That's how tent living began for Jesus. But, Tent living portrays some of Christ's most endearing qualities. It suggests that 
God through Christ is uh, approachable and accessible and available. Humble without pretense. Jesus said, I came to serve, not to be served. And he gave up everything in heaven to come to earth in order to be a servant. That he was vulnerable, experiencing all the dimensions of human life that you and I experience. I made a list of some of those. Let me read them for you. This is Jesus' tent living. He experienced hunger and thirst and tiredness and pain, discomfort, homelessness, ridicule from his family, injustice in the courts, rejection from his own people, piercing temptation when he was weak from a 40-day fast, and every other vulnerability that you and I experience as humans, Jesus experienced. That's part of tenting among us. At the same time, Jesus was successful beyond imagination in opening a way to God. He said one day, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. He said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. We might think that someone living in a tent, approachable, is weak and vulnerable in a way that makes him less than strong. But Jesus was incredibly successful in opening a way to God for all who would believe in him. And uh, he was undeterred by the persecution and the rejection that came his way. So that uh, when he died and was ascended to heaven, he was victorious over sin and death and evil and all the things that bog us down and keep us from becoming the people God wants us to be. In seminary, I was in a class and someone asked the prof, what do you think is the main message of the book of Revelation? And the prof said two words, Jesus wins. Jesus the one who tented among us, incredibly successful in the mission that he set forth to fulfill. Well, our text goes on to emphasize three truths besides these, and that is Jesus is monogenes. Now I know that's a transliteration of a Greek word, but I thought you'd enjoy it because mono says singular, genes means being, being, so it can be translated the only one of its kind. And Jesus was incredibly unique on planet Earth. There has not been a human being who has lived that way ever before or since. And let me explain what that means. Jesus, though he was God, lived fully as a human being. That is, he never used his godness to get through difficult circumstances. We've already mentioned that when he came to earth, he gave up a lot of prerogatives of being God. And Luke tells us that he grew in wisdom and knowledge. There were apocryphal gospels that were written in the second and third centuries. And one of them had a story of Jesus as an eight or nine-year-old kid who made clay pigeons. And then he blew into them and they became alive and he threw them away and they flew and uh, it was a picture of Jesus who used his God prerogatives as a child 
And the church rejected those apocryphal gospels as not being true because that's not who Jesus was. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, for example, when he was famished for food, hungry and exhausted and thirsty, Satan's first temptation was, take that stone and make it into bread and eat. If Jesus had done that, he would have given up the role of being fully human. And Jesus rejected that temptation. Satan took him on a high mountain and, and said, throw yourself down and the angels of God will come and protect you. And Jesus rejected that temptation because to do that would have meant he would not have been fully human. Any other human who cast himself down there would have died. And then Satan said, bow down and worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus flat out rejected that as well. And he used the truths of the word of God as a way of rejecting the temptations of Satan. That's hugely important for us. Because it means that God provides a way of escape for you and I in the midst of the circumstances of life. He is the pioneer of our faith. He, faith. he went through it as a real human being. It was hugely important. One more example. When he was suffering on the cross, uh, they offered him a narcotic, alcohol and other drugs on a sponge. And Jesus rejected that as well. It's as if he was saying, I will not take anything that makes me more than human, and I will not take any drugs that make me less than human. I will come fully aware of all that's going on for the sake of this salvation for the human race. And so, not surprisingly, he is called the last Adam who reverses the impact of the fall described in the, in, in the book of Genesis in the very beginning. Now, I... This really deserves a whole message all by itself. I, I'm free next Sunday if you need... No, well... Uh, it, is, it goes like this. The, the first Adam fell and sinned, and every other human since that time has behaved in ways that have rejected God's laws. We have all fallen. We are all... Uh, all we like sheep have gone astray, says the Bible, and, and we desperately need, we need help but, but when Jesus was born, the angel said, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And he did that by living perfectly as a human being. No other religion does that. Every other religion says, build a ladder to the heavens and do your best to climb it. And maybe if you're good enough, when you get there, God will accept you. But Jesus climbed down that ladder and he came to us and said, I will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. That is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there were eyewitnesses is the second truth that uh, John gives us. It says that they gazed upon his glory. Gazing means you look carefully at something so you actually see what is there. And it implies that... Uh, they studied the life of Christ, and the glory of Christ refers to his power, his purity, and his unparalyzed, unparalleled willingness to obey God at every turn. Think about this for a moment. C.S. Lewis captures it in this quote. When human souls have become as perfect in voluntary obedience as the inanimate creation is in lifeless obedience, 
Then they will put on its glory, or rather the greater glory, which nature is only the first sketch. So when the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God and the, and the firmament sh shows his handiwork, what it's saying is that when stars burn brightly for a lifetime, they are fulfilling the purpose for which they are in the heavens. They are perfectly obeying what God designed them to be. If you find a flower in the mountains that nobody has ever seen before and it's exquisitely beautiful, it is being the flower that God created it to be and so it brings glory to God. And Jesus' glory was that at every choice in his life, his teachings, his behavior, his actions, his going to the cross, perfectly obeyed the will of the Father so he could become the sacrifice that took our place and bore the punishment for our sin. It is the beautiful gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the obedience that Jesus practiced. And the third truth is that Jesus embodied grace and truth. There's a genius here. I don't know about you, but I find it really difficult to practice grace and truth regularly in the way that it should be practiced. In the extremes, when the woman caught in adultery was brought to Jesus, Jesus didn't condemn her, said to the crowd there, you who have no sin, you cast the first stone, and they were honest enough to walk away. When the scribes and the Pharisees were around, Jesus was, uh, he was tough with truth. He said to the self-righteous religious leaders, you are like whitewashed tombs, hypocrites, full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean, full of hypocrisy and wickedness. That's not exactly how to win friends and influence people, is it? It is truth to the core of the folks who took the religion, the truth of the religion that had been given them and made it a masquerade for self-righteousness. And so, the question that comes to us is uh, what do full of grace and truth followers of Christ look like? You see on the screen a picture of Wally and Shirley Olson. Both of them have now passed uh, from uh, to be with the Lord. Wally from uh, pancreatic cancer and Shirley from Alzheimer's. Uh, forgot how to say it. Maybe I've got it. Pray for me. <laughs> uh, Alzheimer's disease. But they were missionaries on the Net Lake Reservation in northern Minnesota. The uh, Boyce Fort tribe of the Chippewas was the group of people that they went to see. Now, if you, if you had met Wally, you would have loved him. He loved the north. He and Ed Byron would fly to, to different uh, Native American reservations across the north, some in Canada. They did so in a little single-engine plane. One day the engine stopped, and so they landed on Rainy Lake. They landed safely, but the ice was so thin the plane began to break through the ice. It was 20 below zero, and uh, as they told the reporters afterwards, 
we didn't really suffer that much. Uh, we were mostly hungry because uh, we didn't have any food. We had two peanut butter sandwiches that a trapper who we met gave us, and that was our meal. They spent the night there. They built a, a lean-to with a big fire to keep them warm. They were cheerful, joyful, purposeful, fun to be with Christians. Wally was one of the most effective missionaries to Native Americans that, that we've had in our denomination. But this is how it started. When he and Shirley moved to Net Lake, they bought a house and they moved in next to Fred. Fred was incensed that this white guy thought he could come to their tribe and give them something they hadn't heard before. And uh, so the morning after the first night they were there, he took his garbage and he dumped it over the fence into the backyard of Wally and Shirley. And Wally got a bag and went over and put the garbage in his bag and put it away where it could be taken to the dump. Fred did the same thing the next day and the next day. He did it every day for three months. And every time Wally met him, he greeted him warmly and asked him how he was doing. And the three months went to six, and the six went to 12, and the 12 went to 50 months. This is every day Wally had to pick up garbage. Trash was thrown, <clears throat> Wally would pick it up. <clears throat> and then on the 18th month, Fred told Wally later, something happened, and as I was throwing my trash into your yard, I began to cry. And I found myself asking the question and thinking, I couldn't believe how Wally lived. Every day he'd pick up the garbage and put it in a bag. Every day he was kind and a good neighbor, never, ever complaining. Well, not surprisingly, Fred became a believer in Christ and eventually became the pastor of the church that Wally had started Nearly a decade ago, Wally learned that he had uh, pancreatic cancer, and Carol and I went and visited him in their home. And while we were visiting, Shirley, his wife, said, look at that over on the wall. And we went over to the wall, looked, and here was a, a uh, framed uh, certificate. The tribe had made him a member of the uh, Boy Sport Band, at that time one of two Caucasians who had been given that tribute. When, when Wally passed away a few weeks later, the church was packed and the overflow room was packed. And uh, the chief of the tribe spoke and said, Wally lived so much like Jesus that we knew what Jesus was like by looking at Wally's life. And the local editorial in the Cook newspaper said, it had the title on it, The Richest Man I Ever Knew. Wally would have laughed at that. He would say we live from paycheck to paycheck. But Wally was rich in friends, in integrity, in impact, in living a life that people admired and were blessed by and wanted to follow. 
So when we look at the neighborhoods that you and I live in, we can be sure of this, that Christ is already there. He moved into your neighborhood before you got there. But God is looking for flesh and blood witnesses, people who live out what grace and truth looks like. If Wally had gone to the local tribal chief and said, would you do something about Fred because he's really a bad neighbor? Who knows, maybe the chief would have gone to Fred and said, you've got to stop doing that. But then Fred would probably never have understood the grace and the love and the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ. God is looking for people who are long on patience and perseverance, who are more about reconciling than rejecting, more about forgiveness than judging, more about speaking the truth in love than hiding the truth in order to be nice. So my prayer is that God would give us the grace and the strength to live that way for Christ's sake, for our own sake, and for the sake of people who don't know who God is. And they won't trust Him probably until they trust you and they trust me as being faithful followers of Jesus Christ. Amen.